We are going to be looking at Psalm 32 today. Before we get into it, one thing I want to highlight and reflect on is that the, the, one of the first words you read out of Psalm 32 is a, is a strange word, which is maskeel. This means instruction, warning, admonition, the idea of, hey, pay attention. I have something I need to tell you. Listen up. And I highlight that today because as I've read and studied this passage, I thought about what it says and what it's going to be saying and some of the the more difficult things that it's saying. And even though uh, the last two Sundays we've had some great guest speakers that probably are more gifted in speaking than I am, I'm glad that I'm here today to to share what this masquil has to say because I am a part of Connection Church and many of you are a part of Connection Church. And so within our church body, I wanted to be the one to share some of these things because it comes from a place of caring and loving for each of you. Now, maybe the guest speakers also cared and loved for you, but um, if we're going to have an arm wrestling contest, who loves you more? I win. But it's something that I, I wanted to pay attention to. And so if you, if you hear hard things this morning, if God is saying something to you that is difficult to hear this morning, and you ask to yourself, why are you telling me this? Remember, masquil, instruction, warning, admonition. I'm doing it for a play out of a place of something that someone who cares for you. So, Psalm 32. I'm going to be taking two Sundays uh, back to back to unpack this psalm, and in it we're going to take a look at some basic themes of happiness, forgiveness, and the promises that God's been giving us um, as a result of Jesus and the and the grace given to us by Jesus. Before we dive in further into the actual psalm, maybe there's some context to to consider just what are psalms. Um, Psalms are essentially poems or songs written, and they are there to guide personal, private prayer as well as for public worship. And these are things that God uses to speak to all the different situations, circumstances, experiences of our lives. Some might be difficult Psalms are out of a place of emotional turmoil. Some might be joyful, happy, and uh, exuberant. And these are often quoted in the New Testament. So there is something to say about the, the early Christians, the people who are around Jesus. They, they had a deep understanding, or at least they liked to quote the, the Psalms. And so maybe in the summertime you're used to turning on the radio and going for long drives, and you listen to the summer singles, the summer hits, the jams that the radio plays over and over and over, and the idea is that they get stuck in your head because they're catchy. They're really catchy. Um, with this psalm, I hope that um, you, this can be on repeat in your head and that it's hard to get out of your head and that you can turn to it and think about it as you go for long drives or wherever you find yourself. Uh, the author is presumably David or King David. King David is, 
he's the man, most people would say. He, people really like him. He had a lot of accomplishments. He was a man after God's heart. He really seems to be someone who likes to lead and provide an example for us, which is maybe why he wrote this psalm. And though maybe extraordinary things have happened in his life, one thing to pay attention to is that the way he writes psalms, it shapes and helps us understand maybe who God is. And the audience, the Jewish people, David writing to the people that he is serving in leadership, that he wanted them to hear these words. Again, maskeel. He thought that his experiences would be worth noting and that they should, they should pay attention. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have people who can hand you a Bible. Um, if uh, these, we, are, we want to put them in your hands because rather than just hearing me speak and throw fancy words at you, we want you to be able to open it and see for yourself what God says. And with the word in front of you, I hope that the word is the thing that's convicting you, not me. So, I'm going to read Psalm 32, and then I'll, and then I'll uh, have a time of prayer before we dig in more. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Pray with me. Father, I confess that this morning without your blessing and Holy Spirit, my words would be useless and my efforts fall short. Please speak through me. Please stir in us and give us hearts that desire you and desire confession. 
thank you for bringing us all here this morning and that uh, you have accomplished your work through Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to focus on the first five verses of, of this psalm. And I want you to see something very clearly about the relationship we have with God and even with others. And it's, and it's twofold. It's real simple. Twofold. Sin is toxic. It is toxic. And confession is required. Sin is toxic and confession is required. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. And uh, though these statements may seem straightforward or clear to you, one thing I'm going to make sure you understand is the principles and the weight of some of these things here. So first thing I'm going to talk about is, is the word blessed or blessed if you're fancy. Um, some interpretations are going to use the word happy here. And I've, um, I tend not to use the word happy. I tend to think of the word joy instead. And maybe that has something just to do with where we're at in our historical context or our culture um, because there is not much of a delineation between joy and happiness in the original context. The word blessed is to be happy in, in the original Hebrew. So I don't know if there's really much reason to, to delineate, but you may hear me say joy or happiness. And this word carries some sort of excitement or exuberance, like how happy is this guy who has his sin, his transgression, forgiven? There is excitement. And so the reader, hearing the word blessed or blessed, should also think about the emotional excitement of happiness. Um, I spoke a few months ago up here, and one of the things that I was uh, confessing to you all is there was maybe a distinct lack of, of happiness that I was noticing with my life. And part of it was because I think I have just a really good poker face, ironically terrible at poker, but just a really good poker face. And it was something that I was, you know, I don't walk around with a huge smile on my face all the time. However, as I, I mentioned that to you all um, several months ago, I started to let God speak to that, and this psalm is what stood out to me. Because happiness is something that is directly correlated to me understanding what God has done for me. And we all seek to be happy. It's kind of in our nature. Um, unless you are the fictional character of Eeyore, we all tend to pursue happiness in some sort of way. Um, I think of the Constitution says we pursue happiness. We have the freedom to pursue happiness, whatever that may be look like. And we all tend to do that. I also think of the, the summer single, the, the summer hit that was several months, uh, several years ago. Um, barrel, because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel. So there is something to say about this innate desire for each of us to be happy. So we all seek it. But consider this and let God speak to you in this question. What have you thought would make you happy, but didn't? What have you thought was going to make you happy, but didn't make you happy? Take stock of that right now. Think about what that might have been, or what that is currently, 
Maybe it is having enough money, having the security and the, your investments in the right place and feeling that you have enough there. Maybe it is some sort of relationship, uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, thinking that is going to make you who you should be and that's going to make you happy. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's your career, your career path, your calling, thinking that you are called to be a certain thing doctor, physician, lawyer, whatever you do, or in a certain achievement, that certain promotion. If I just get to this level in my job, then I'll be happy. Or is it some sort of other pleasurable or, or leisurely experience? I can count on the number of hands, like how many vacations I've gone on thinking, ah, vacation, time to rest. And then I t come home and I'm like, I feel exhausted. Why did I even go on the vacation? Um, we think that it's going to bring us some sort of happiness. Maybe it is that you feel like you need to have a certain number of experiences and, and life exposures to different things in your world and traveling, that that's, you will be a well-rounded individual if you've experienced that and gotten to see this and gone to do this, going to things, being present to things. That will make you happy. How do those things work out for you? Probably they came up short. Not going to be good enough. So what do these first two verses say? The person who finds happiness, the person who is going to experience happiness, is one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered, whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So here we describe, you can simply conclude that our happiness problem is actually a sin problem. Nothing will bring about the happiness other than what God is providing for us in Jesus, which is a gift of salvation. Because our greatest problem is sin, and it's toxic. So I want to take a closer look at our predicament with sin and I have wanted to unpack these three different words used to describe something that get in the way of our happiness. We have transgression, sin, iniquity. They're all slightly different, so I want to make sure we, we, we camp on them a little bit and that you can get the totality of our problem. Transgression. This is the idea of a rebellion, a trespass something you're choosing to go against. You see the line, you look at the line, and you cross it. You actively do that. You may actually remember uh, an analogy used in a previous sermon here about the idea of trespassing. We have a neighbor who we go into their yard maybe to get something, maybe just to uh, clean something up, pick up sticks. We're technically trespassing on someone else's property. We don't typically get worried that the police are going to come and arrest us for that because it just doesn't seem like a big deal. We kind of rationalize it a little bit. Um, whenever there's a line to draw, we kind of blur that line. We just kind of tow it a little bit. That's, that's what transgression is. Now, the analogy previously used was you don't care so much if you trespass against your neighbor, maybe in their yard, or against someone else if it's if maybe it's just a little lie here, a little white lie there. But 
God being holy and having being perfect and being holy and being separate, any type of trespass, any type of transgression is like you're walking into a military base or the Pentagon where you're like, they're going to notice that you went over that fence and there's going to be consequences. So transgression, even though we may blur the lines ourselves and maybe lie to ourselves about what is okay in terms of certain positive or active forms of sin, God's still there. He knows where that boundary is. He set that line, and he's holy. Sin. The word sin, it's our f- favorite three-letter word. We love talking about sin. Um, that's being sarcastic. I apologize. No one likes talking about sin. This is why I'm talking about it. This term sin here is more of a, a missing the mark. You're aiming for something. You're giving your best effort to go and do something and to achieve something, and you fall short. You fall short. Your best effort is not good enough. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned or missed and fall short, lack of the glory of God. You think you have it in you. You think you're going to be enough. But time and time again, experiences, whether daily, weekly, whatever, you're going to notice, ah, I didn't do it. I thought I was going to be able to. Didn't have enough in me. Sports analogies are great for this. Um, think of, uh, I was, I think of an arrow, and you're shooting for a target, and it just kind of lands in the grass. I can remember that in good detail from, from camp, camp experiences where you, kids learning how to use archery because that's super safe, and they just start shooting at the target. Well, if you ever go to a camp and see archery, you see how many arrows fall short. It's just boom, boom, boom. People go crazy when they hit the target there. Um, basketball. This is where you get to see it played out in my life. Going up for a shot, going to shoot a free throw, three-pointer, whatever it is, I will just whiff it. I will hit the air. It'll be an air ball. Like, it just will be. And that's falling short. That's not super, uh, that's not super fun either. You get a little embarrassed. Football, if you're a football person, the field goal and the kicker, they have to make it between the two posts, and it has to be long enough. So if they're going for a 50-yard field goal, you wonder if it's going to be enough. Is their best effort, is that kick going to be enough? and it falls short. If you're a Vikings fan, you definitely know what I'm talking about there. (laughs) The last one is iniquity. Now this one, if the first two haven't um, grabbed you and, and, and challenged you because of the idea of transgression being an active choice of crossing the line because you seem to be okay with blurring that line, or if you're just not good enough and you're missing the mark, Iniquity describes something different. It describes a place of you in yourself, your nature, who you are. There is something about you that is crooked, bent, something that isn't going to ever get straightened. And try as you might, you just tend to veer off. Can't go straight. I try to think of an analogy for this one. 
I thought of a, a wire coat hanger. I hate wire coat hangers. I hate them. They're just, they always don't work the way you want. Um, but wire coat hangers could be, you know, their original purpose is it's fine. They work well. You put them and you put something on it, you hang it up, and they work. But if you can take a wire coat hanger, you can unravel it, and you can use it for different things. But you know what? You are not going to get that back into original shape of a coat hanger. It just, it's just always going to be a little bent, a little twisted. Its shape is going to be changed. And no matter how hard you try to make it look like a coat hanger again, it's just going to look a little off. And you might as well just throw it out and get a different one. Our original purpose in our lives can no longer happen. Iniquity. I hope you see that the, those three things leave us kind of in a terrible predicament. It's just, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I keep crossing lines. I keep falling short. There's something in me that is just pointless. I can't, be, can't go straight even if hard, as hard as I try. What are we going to do? Going back to the verses, we see a few things. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and, and blessed is the man against the Lord counts no iniquity. Let's look at these words for a moment. Forgiven. This usually illustrates the idea of a burden that is on someone being lifted. Lifted or removed. I tend to think of um, hiking. I, I tend to think that I like hiking, but I tend to forget that I like hiking when I put on 30, 40 pounds of weight on my shoulders and I start walking through the woods and I think, I hate hiking. Why am I even, what is this thing on my back? It's very burdensome. And I, and I just forget to even look around and, exp- and enjoy the nature when I'm feeling this burden, this weight on my shoulders. So God is taking this weight and it's, he's removing it. He's lifting it up. There are burdens in our lives that are too heavy for us. Can you admit that today? Can you acknowledge that today, that there are burdens too heavy for you? Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. Now, covered can sound like hidden to us, like sweeping it under the rug, just shoving it in the closet and hoping the closet stays closed. Or if you go to my house currently, all of the stuff just is thrown into the basement and we don't let people go down there because it's just crazy down there. And, and it's not that. That's not the type of covered where it, that is getting described because we don't really get to hide things from God. Things don't get covered and hidden out of his sight. He, he sees you. He knows where you're at. But this is more of a concealment, or rather, something that's getting blotted out. Think of, a, uh, think of some sort of ledger or some sort of uh, report card 
where there is clear documentation of all the things that have gone well, haven't gone well, your failures, your grades, all on one piece of paper, and that represents who you are or what you've done. Being covered is to blot that out. Imagine that someone were to spill ink or paint or something across that piece of paper, and you wouldn't be able to see anything that was on that piece of paper. It's no longer visible. It's not counted against you that way. God says this in a different passage in Isaiah 43, verse 25. As God is speaking, he says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The last one, not counting iniquity against Now, the way that this is written is rather important. I've already mentioned it. God still is counting and noticing where there is sin and where there is transgressions, right? God still counts. He knows what's on your track record. And he counts all that iniquity. But he doesn't count it against us. He counts it against his son, Jesus He takes what he should be placing on you. He lifts the burden. He places it on Jesus. He still counts it because he's holy. And he's still just, so he has to punish it. So what hope do we have? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who's going to be taking care of these things. So now you can maybe start to see why the person was happy and blessed to have transgressions forgiven and sin covered. The last phrase in verse 2 is the person in which there is no deceit. Um, Some places use the word guile. I I never use the word guile, so I wanted to say guile a few more times so people could remember the word guile. I mentioned this uh, when I was speaking up here on John chapter 1 a few months ago, and there was a disciple who didn't have any deceit because that disciple was being honest with himself and honest with others. So don't lie to yourself about sin. Don't rationalize it. Don't be comfortable with it. Don't ignore it. I see this play out most frequently on social media, right? You don't really get to see Facebook posts that say, you know, oh, I sinned this way today and and thank God that God's forgiven me and given me grace. What do you see? You see vacation photos. You see people with their dogs, their cats, their children. You see them happy. They try to put out this, oh, look, I'm happy. This is me happy. We're very good at lying to ourselves about our, our current predicament. So we do this all the time. We, we try to hide stuff few examples. Speeding. Yeah, speeding, let's, we can blur that line as much as we want. If you're in Minnesota, you can go 10 over. If you're in South Dakota, you can go 3 over. I've learned that. If you have anger, you may not express the anger, but you feel it, and you hold on to it with resentment. If you fudge the numbers here or there, if you, if you have your eyes that linger where they shouldn't, or you ha- go to websites or watch TV that you shouldn't, without an honest 
assessment of yourself where there is no deceit as to who you are. You don't really want or accept the perfect solution that God has. So there might be some here who may not call themselves a Christian. And you've probably had some experience with Christians who, who fail to see their own sin or their shortcomings, or they fail to acknowledge it. And they just, you, you look at this Christian person and you just think, ugh, it's unappealing and nauseating to see a Christian who seems to be lying to themselves about their, who they are or what they've done. But take a moment, take what you've heard so far in these verses and apply it and paint a picture in your mind of what a Christian would be if they were to think about this differently. A Christian that is humble, confessing their failures or their shortcomings, and then as a result of doing those things, they experience happiness, or you see them at peace with themselves, and they're forgiven and freed from failures. You would think, hmm, I kind of think I want that. It would be a little bit more appealing. So I'm glad you're here this morning and that you can see that without an honest assessment and without someone who is bringing their sin and confessing to God where they are at, there might not be happiness. I'm going to look at verses 3 and 4 now. Again, sin is toxic. Confession is required. Here we learn a little bit about confession. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Selah. This is where we have the first Selah. Um, Again, this is a poem or some sort of uh, song originally. So this would probably be some sort of musical notation, some place where it's a natural pause, and it's there to make you reflect. Stop. Take a minute. Take a beat. We've heard in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 now the predicament we are in, how toxic sin is, and that without confession, there is something happening to us. But what is being kept silent in this passage? There's a little bit of conjecture or meaning. We kind of have to guess, but it's, if you know your Old Testament, if you know a little bit about David, your mind probably goes to the uh, experience and the story of uh, David and Bathsheba. And that seems to have stirred David to write this psalm and to describe this experience. And he writes about similar experiences in different psalms. You can look it up yourself in 2 Samuel 11, but I'm going to be briefly just highlighting some of the things about the story of David and Bathsheba. And starting off with just the first sentence in this story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, it talks about David not going to war. It talks about him deciding, I think I'm just going to sit this one out. I'm king. Who's going to question me? I think I'm just going to let someone else fight those battles. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Take a summer break, summer vacation, or a spring break, rather. Spring, spring break. And I would imagine that he got bored because he finds himself up on a roof. And 
people are, who are bored, they do weird things. They go up on roofs. They just they do weird things. And up on the roof, he sees a woman, and he wants to be with that woman. And he, first he finds out, oh, that woman's married. Well, I'm king, so he's going he's gonna to have her come to him anyways. And then they have a child, and she's pregnant. And he feels like maybe he's stuck, but then he schemes, and he comes up with some sort of solution. The solution was to have, his, have this woman's husband come out from war to get him intoxicated and then hopefully have him go home and visit his wife. But he doesn't, so his first plan was foiled. Next, he decides, well, I guess I just have to get rid of him and instructs the military or the leaders of the army to let, your, let her husband fight in a, in a battle that he is not going to survive. And so he dies. Keeping silent. David probably thought he got away with it. For six to 12 months, whenever it was, the baby was, uh, you know, uh, Bathsheba was pregnant, and he had months and months and months to think, all right, taken care of. Sin is hidden. This is fine. But he was lying to himself and refusing to acknowledge where he had sinned in several, several places. So now my question is to you. Where do you think you've gotten away with something? Where, have you, where do you think you've gotten away with something? It may be that it never comes to light at your workplace or in your relationship. It may be that no one ever really knows. But God knows. Verse 5. My bones wasted away through my groaning. This is describing some sort of roaring or screaming all day long. Your hand was heavy upon me. Imagine the weight. And my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I want to make a cautionary statement here as uh, I can't always prevent people misunderstanding me because sometimes I'm hard to understand. But here I want to make sure that I'm very clear on something. Sin in our life can be tied to physical and mental punishment, but not all physical and mental difficulties can be tied to sin. It doesn't work that way. I would you know, encourage you to read Job, the book of Job, or to read a passage out in John 9 where Jesus says, it's not because this person has sinned or his parents have sinned. This thing happened, this illness happened so that God could demonstrate his glory. I need to repeat it again just in case. Sin can be tied to mental or physical punishment, but not all physical and mental trouble can be tied to sin. We just live in a broken world, people. We just do. So you may have some sort of difficulty, whether it's physical or whether it's emotional or something else. I'm not saying here to you today, hey, you need to be confessing. It's probably that. I'm just saying for David in this story, God uses this to get his attention. 
another cautionary statement. These symptoms don't always point to hidden sin. It's kind of a repeating of the last thing, but I feel like I should say it anyways. It doesn't always point to hidden sin, nor is it your duty to point out other people's hidden sin. That's God's job. God is there to convict. And even though maybe the symptoms that David was experiencing here in verse 5 may be unusual or exceptional to him, you know what isn't unusual? Stubbornness, refusing to acknowledge sin. That's common. That's everyone's problem. And so God uses whatever he can to get our attention sometimes. It's not just in this psalm that we hear about physical or mental anguish. David actually writes several psalms in this, in this uh, experience of his, and some of them are, are even more striking. So let me, read you out of, let me read something out of Psalm 38. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day. I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Psalm 22, you may know this psalm because Jesus quotes it on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The psalms, again, describe our experiences, our emotional depth, the spectrum of of all the things that could happen to us. The Psalms do that. Now, this might sound unusual, but I, I kind of I started to see this as a, as a gift. I see this as a gift. Because without there being consequences felt, would David have confessed? We'd have to speculate. But it seems that from these verses, God saved him by a means of David's suffering, and not only suffering, but God sent to David a prophet, Nathan, that you can read about in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And Nathan, speak, speaking on God's behalf, says to David, You have been appointed, anointed and appointed to lead my people, and you will not die. But Nathan says, But your son will, the son that Bathsheba bore, the son that happened because of the transgressions, this son. You may say, as like I say, that doesn't seem very fair. David was the one who crossed the line. He was the one who fell short. Why is the son dying in his place? That might sound familiar to you if you've been around us long enough. God has sent his son to die in our place, and that's not fair either. So, as you've heard me already get at, are you playing with something today that's toxic? Are you playing with poison? Are you letting something fester in you? And 
Can, is it happening? To take a, is it taking effect on you somehow? Maybe there is just a lack of joy or happiness. Maybe it's something else happening. Verse 5, again, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is, rep- this is a repetition of the first verse. And it isn't just here that we hear this repetition. This is throughout the Bible. It's repeated because it's important. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteous, unrighteousness. So this is, this is my conclusion. Confession, it's what we do as Christians. It's, in, it's in, in the nature of being a Christian is to actively practice confession. Confession might sound like a weird word. I've been saying it now for, for a long time. And I want to just encourage you, you can use other words, I don't really care. The idea is that you are professing, acknowledging, recognizing, admitting that there is something in you that you can't, can't fix and that you need God. Last week we heard Brennan Peterson talk about being freed to fight, not being freed from the fight, meaning that sin will be here as long as the earth is here. And he reviewed how the Israelites have a predicament about being out of, removed out of a slavery, yet part of them really felt like they wanted to go back to being slaves. There is something about their sin that was easier for them, or that they made me believe that in their slavery they would have been happier. If we have been given freedom from being slaves to sin, what is our fighting strategy? It's to confess. I'm going to read from John 8, verse 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide or remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that you'll become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free Indeed. Now I'm shifting gears here, so don't misunderstand me. There is a, an argument of some practical things that we ought to be confessing sin and to fight sin through confession, and we will perhaps feel the weight, or conscious, our conscience, our burdens will feel lighter, and we might have that experience of happiness because we are in a right relationship with God. And there's value in making confession some sort of discipline in your life, something that you practice doing uh, with people in your life that you trust. 
But in this context of, of John, in the book of John, the truth that is being referred to is the true nature and the true work of Jesus, confessing and professing and acknowledging that He is Lord and Savior and that through Him you are saved. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is what we first need to be confessing. And when we acknowledge and confess that Jesus has taken away our burdens and he is making us whole again, we're going to be happy. We're going to be blessed. And you won't hide it. It'll be evident. And people will be interested in seeing that and, and finding out why. As we transition to worship and communion, um, this is what communion is for us. Communion is a celebration of Jesus' sacrifice and his accomplished work on the cross. So I invite you during our last worship song and as the offering baskets go around uh, that you uh, reflect on what you need to confess. Is it first that you just need to confess that Jesus is who he really says he is and that he is Lord and Savior? Or is there things that you think you've gotten away with that you need to confess? I uh, encourage you to think about that before we, we do communion. And if you are not a believer or not someone who says, I believe this is who Jesus is and what he's done, don't feel pressure to join as this action isn't going to reflect what you can really believe right now. And if you need more conversations about this, please find me. The communion servers are going to say something to you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. That sacrifice and this act of acknowledging what he's done is going to bring about the joy and happiness and bring us into a worship of who God is. Join me as, as we pray. Father, you are so good and you love us. You have given us your son as sacrifice though we don't deserve it. Lord, we confess and acknowledge to you that there are lines that we have crossed there are places that we fall short and we are unable to remain on a straight path. We're going to veer off. I ask, Lord, that uh, the people in this room hear what you have to say to them and that you can convict them and if needed, place on them a burden that will allow them to confess to you. Please remove stubbornness from my heart, 
from their hearts. We love you. We acknowledge that we need you. Amen.